Part One, Chapter Four of The Swoop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Swoop, or How Clarence Saved England, by P. G. Woodhouse. Part One, Chapter Four. What England Thought of It. Such a state of affairs, disturbing enough in itself, was rendered still more disquieting by the fact that except for the Boy Scouts, England's military strength at this time was practically nil. The abolition of the regular army had been the first step. Several causes had contributed to this. In the first place, the socialists had condemned the army system as unsocial. Privates, they pointed out, were forbidden to hobnob with colonels though the difference in their positions was due to a mere accident of birth. They demanded that every man in the army should be a general. Comrade Quelch, in an eloquent speech at Newington Butts, had pointed, amidst enthusiasm, to the republics of South Africa, where the system worked admirably. Scotland, too, disapproved of the army, because it was professional. Mr. Smith wrote several trenchant letters to Mr. C. J. B. Marriott on the subject. So the army was abolished, and the land defence of the country entrusted entirely to the territorials, the legion of frontiersmen, and the Boy Scouts. But first the territorials dropped out. The strain of being referred to on the music-hall stage as Teddy Boys was too much for them. Then the frontiersmen were disbanded. They had promised well at the start, but they had never been themselves since Lamilo had been attacked by the Manchester Watch Committee. It had taken all the heart out of them. So that in the end England's defenders were narrowed down to the Boy Scouts, of whom Clarence Chugwater was the pride, and a large civilian population, prepared at any moment to turn out for their country's sake and wave flags. A certain section of these, too, could sing patriotic songs. It was inevitable, in the height of the silly season, that such a topic as the simultaneous invasion of Great Britain by nine foreign powers should be seized upon by the press. Countless letters poured into the offices of the London daily papers every morning. Space forbids more than the gist of a few of these. Miss Charlesworth wrote, In this crisis I see no alternative. I shall disappear. Mr. Horatio Bottomley, in John Bull, said that there was some very dirty and underhand work going on, and that the secret history of the invasion would be published shortly. He himself, however, preferred any invader, even the King of Bolligala, to some K.C.'s he could name. Though he was fond of dear old Muir, he wanted to know why Inspector Drew had retired. The Daily Express, in a thoughtful leader, said that free trade evidently meant invaders for all. Mr. Herbert Gladstone, writing to the Times, pointed out that he had let so many undesirable aliens into the country that he did not see that a few more made much difference. Mr. George R. Sims made eighteen puns on the names of the invading generals in the course of one number of Mustard and Cress. Mr. H. G. Pelissier urged the public to look on the bright side. There was a sun still shining in the sky. Besides, who knew that some foreign marksman might not pot the censor? Mr. Robert Fitzsimmons offered to take on any of the invading generals, or all of them, and if he didn't beat them, 
it would only be because the referee had a wife and seven small children, and had asked him as a personal favour to let himself be knocked out. He had lost several fights that way. The directors of the Crystal Palace wrote a circular letter to the shareholders, pointing out that there was a good time coming. With this addition to the public, the palace stood a sporting chance of once more finding itself full. Judge Willis asked, "'What is an invasion?' Senior Scotty cabled anxiously from America, prepaid. "'Stands Scotland where it did?' Mr. Lewis Waller wrote heroically, "'How many of them are there?' I am usually good for about half a dozen. Are there assassins? I can tackle any number of assassins. Mr. Seymour Hicks said he hoped they would not hurt George Edwards. Mr. George Edwards said that if they injured Seymour Hicks in any way, he would never smile again. A writer in Answers pointed out that, if all the invaders in the country were piled in a heap, they would reach some of the way to the moon. Far-seeing men took a gloomy view of the situation. They laid stress on the fact that this counter-attraction was bound to hit first-class cricket hard. For some years Gates had shown a tendency to fall off, owing to the growing popularity of golf, tennis, and other games. The desire to see the invaders as they marched through the country must draw away thousands, who otherwise would have paid their sixpence at the turnstiles. It was suggested that representations should be made to the invading generals, with a view to inducing them to make a small charge to sightseers. In sporting circles, the chief interest centred on the race to London. The papers showed the positions of the various armies each morning in their runners and betting columns. Six to four on the Germans was freely offered, but found no takers. Considerable interest was displayed in the probable behaviour of the nine armies when they met. The situation was a curious outcome of the modern custom of striking a deadly blow before actually declaring war. Until the moment when the enemy were at her doors, England had imagined that she was on terms of the most satisfactory friendship with her neighbours. The foe had taken full advantage of this, and also of the fact that, owing to a fit of absent-mindedness on the part of the government, England had no ships afloat which were not entirely obsolete. Interviewed on the subject by representatives of the daily papers, the government handsomely admitted that it was perhaps in some ways a silly thing to have done. But, they urged, you could not think of everything. Besides, they were on the point of laying down a dreadnought, which would be ready in a very few years. Meanwhile, the best thing the public could do was to sleep quietly in their beds. It was Fisher's tip, and Fisher was a smart man." And all the while the invaders' marathon continued. Who would be the first to reach London? End of Part 1 Chapter 4